Hello, and welcome to another edition, you might even call it the Christmas edition, of Mastering Dungeons. I am here. I am Sean Merwin. I am with Teos Abadia, who is going to lead us through another week of madness and mayhem. Am I your jolly elf, Sean? You... I think at this point I am more jolly elf-like than you would be, except for the jolly part, uh, and really except for the elf part. Is is there like a grumpy gnome as opposed to a jolly elf? Because I'm the, pretty jolly. You, I tell I, you, I have been eating a lot of cookies. That's good. I've been having a lot of eggnog in my Christmas vacation glass, uh, and, and also I'm pumped because I changed out my furnace for a heat pump, and oh. so see what I did there. Cool. Yes. All in the yes. name of environmental stuff because my furnace was dying, so it's super efficient. I, I will be good. I will be moving there in probably a year uh, with the panel. I look so. forward to it. We're going to play games all the time. Pretend we're not married. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. So we should probably do a show since we're here recording this. Yeah. And I was going to start the the show with actually a question from Twitter. So at Fantasy Realm Guy on Twitter asked this question. Is there still room for new TTRPGs that aren't using a super popular IP or even new and original D&D 5e settings? Or is it so flooded that it's simply not worth the work? Any thoughts? I thought, oh, this is a great discussion question to have with my friend Teos. Yeah. So so what do you think? Any uh, Any thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, it's a huge question. Yeah. And I can see where this might come from because I think that there's that feeling that like even wizards can't cover all of its settings, Mm -hmm. right? Like it has to dole it out. Or that if you look at the giant Kickstarters, it's things like Avatar, right? Right. Or it's Aliens by Free League. And so I think that I could see why that sort of sticks in one's mind as like, can I, it's it's like sort of like movies, right? It's just do another, let's do the Matrix again, right? Let's do another thing again instead of doing something new. Right, or G.I. Joe or Transformers. Yeah. The, the the new stuff that we're getting is sort of more based on the IP than the fact that it's a role-playing game sometimes. So, yeah, I, I think this is a highly nuanced question because, you know, is there room for them? Absolutely. There's room for anything you want to make as a creator. Is there an audience for them? Most likely. Is that a big enough audience to say that there's a market for them? Probably. Yeah. Now, can you make a profit from publishing them? Well, that depends. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I see where you're going and I, and I like it and I agree in that I think there's, there's room for anything because cool ideas are cool. And, yeah. and so people like cool ideas. And if your idea is in fact cool and can stand out and can grab an audience, it can do really well. Like that we saw the plain Gia that we talked about, right? Like mm-hmm. that's probably the most recent case I can think of. Uh, I can probably come up with others where there was a setting that I was like, yeah, like this, this take on a primeval world is neat. And it's not just giving me dinosaurs. It's sort of taking classes back to their basics and taking races, you know, back to the basics. Like, like those are kind of cool ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and if you communicate it well and team with the right people and have cool art and all that, you can have a very successful Kickstarter, right? Yeah. And that's why I think when you're designing a new game or a, a new 5e setting, whether you're doing it just for fun or whether you're doing it as part of a, you know, a business project, you always have to stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? What makes this different? What makes it new? What makes it exciting? Why are players going to have more fun playing this 
than something that's already out there. Because yeah. speaking as a player or a DM, I don't need another Forgotten Realms. I don't need a, even another Eberron. Definitely don't need another Greyhawk. Those are there. I'm not motivated by nostalgia either, really. So I don't need another version of the Forgotten Realms or another version of Eberron, even with the Eberron name on it. But what I do want, whether I'm creating it or consuming it, is something that provides a unique and tailored play experience that I can't find anywhere else. So I love like the short campaign that has its own adventure, plus some rules that go along with it to, to be different and new, but without making me learn a whole new game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, when it comes to like an actual RPG, you know, that's again, the sort of question of like, well, are you trying to like take on Wizards of the Coast? Mm-hmm. Probably don't try to do that. Right? right. Don't try to make the next D&D. Uh, that is exactly what you know covers the same basis as D D. Yeah, that's probably a hard market to crack. But you know we can see some of the brilliant RPG design that's been done recently, where there are very unique mm-hmm. takes. Right, something like Alice is Missing is sure. just completely different from anything we've seen before. That's right. one approach. But even I think there's some space in properties that aren't so you know owned by an entity. Mm-hmm. but that draw a lot of people. Like I would say something like like cyberpunk. I think there's room there for cyberpunk systems that allow you to have a certain type of play. Right. And you can look at things like that, like how quickly can you play, how easily, how much can you improvise? Mm-hmm. And along those lines, there's always room for a game that tweaks it a bit and makes it different so that it's more of an experience that people can't quite get, right? Like maybe they, yeah. I mean, obviously Shadowrun exists, but Shadowrun is a bulky system. Mm-hmm. Right. So what happens if you make that a much streamlined, more streamlined improvisational type system that might be better? Right. And that comes to a question of, you know, the narrative versus the mechanics, which we will talk about in our news and commentary section yeah. in just a moment. But let's dive right into to the news. The first bit of news was following up on something we reported last week. D&D has answered some questions with a update to their studio blog. So last week, we talked about the Sage Advice and Errata article where there was a lot of, uh, well, there's been a lot of discussion on all of the changes that were made, not really so much to the mechanics as to the role of certain species in the game and how they are presented. So uh, Ray Winninger, who's in charge of D&D at Wizards, added an update to the blog with three main points. And I'm going to let you take the first point. Yeah. So, and the first thing he does is sort of say, hey, there's been misinformation online. And and I kind of agree with that because I've heard people say things like, oh, they just took out so much stuff. And there was a Reddit post that sort of collected all the words that have been removed. And when you look at it that way, it seems like a lot, but there's a lot still there. Mm-hmm. And so it's some very small percentage of the words that were stripped out. And when you look at some of those words, my reaction was, yeah, these are really bad words. I'm yeah. glad to see these gone. Right. Um, so I think that was sort of the first thing they addressed, not in the words that I'm using. They sort of said, you know, hey, there's a little misinformation out there. Yeah. I invite you to take a look at what we really did. And then he says, you know, and here's why. Three reasons. One is multiverse. We're increasingly focused on the multiverse. So because of this, Volo's Guide to Monsters needs to speak to all orcs, not a type of orcs that may exist in one setting. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people looked at this because, you know, Eberron has very different orcs than Forgotten Realms. Yeah. And, um, and and he, he even made a, a great point, uh, point later on. So his second point is alignment. 
Mm-hmm. And he says, the team feels your character should be whichever alignment you want it to be so that any suggested alignment for races are therefore removed. Because right. when we're talking about player facing, you be what you want to be, which is what you're supposed to do anyway, right? So this is kind of in conflict with our design. Yeah. And he says, again, multiverse is really important. Like, you know, if we talk about halflings, we might say like, oh, you know, they're generally lawful good, but not on Dark Sun where they're cannibalistic, yeah. right? Right. Um, yeah. And even even within the Forgotten Realms, yeah. you know, the, the, the Ten Arrows tribe was originally, you know, portrayed in one way, whereas on the eastern side of Faerun, where the orcs are accepted because they joined the other humanoids in a war, you know, they were integrated into society. Yeah. So even within their own world of the Forgotten Realms, that stereotypical orc didn't hold up. Yeah. Yeah. And and the history of of how the orc empires have sort of changed around and who's been in charge of them and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so there are a lot of examples there. And his last point is creature personalities. Uh, mind flayers and beholders had text suggesting all members had the same personality. This is contrary to D&D's advice to DMs to make adventures and campaigns memorable, which is to populate them with unique and interesting characters. Um, yeah. The essential nature is unchanged. A mind flayer is eating people's brains generally as a food source. Yeah, that's going to push you towards evil, right? But an individual yeah. mind flayer can be different. And so, you know, when you paint with a broad brush, you're just undermining what you're trying to do in the game. Yeah. For example, a mind flayer that uses its tentacles to make it look like a mustache and is actually <laughs> an account. created such a thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, this, this reminds me of the sort of a writing theory in fiction. We talk about flat characters and, you know, in, in the general entertainment uh, industry or world, when you hear the term flat character, you instantly think of a negative. You think, oh, those characters aren't three-dimensional. But flat characters are tools in fiction to sort of get a point across without going into too much detail. So if you think of like Robin Hood, you have, you know, Robin Hood is fighting the Sheriff of Nottingham, who is a slightly rounded character, the Sheriff, but maybe he has these hench people who are behind him. And in the movie or in the story, you know, Robin Hood, that you don't want to hear the huge backstories of these henchmen. And by actually adding a backstory to them, you're, you're confusing the issue rather than illuminating the issue you're trying to describe. So you'd actually don't want rounded characters in that sense. And I think that's one of the things I haven't seen it specifically said like this is in our games, we want those flat characters, those flat foes that we can just put out there to say, these are the people you're fighting. They're the bad guys. The problem is you don't want to make that flat character stereotypical of any species, any races, any religions, any ethnicities, any of that. You want to avoid doing that because that does add a deeper level that confuses the issue rather than illuminates what you're trying to say in your story. So to me, that's the whole thing, right? It's Taking aside anyone who is really steeped in racism, mm-hmm. you know, people are saying, but we just want to have orcs that we can fight because we've always been doing that. And it's it's fine to want that. You're not a bad person for wanting that morally clear, these are the bad folks that we're fighting. It's just you want to do it in a way that doesn't seep into real world isms, yeah. which these things have done. 
and continue to do at points. And, and I think in a fictional game, which is what we're talking about here, you can achieve this by spending just a little bit of time on what the, what the motives are and what the story is mm -hmm. of any group that you're dealing with, right? Right. Um, you know, what motivates the bandits? What motivates the ogres? Why, you know, why are they working for this evil villain? You know, what's just, and it doesn't take a lot. And, and I think we're probably a lot of designers are going to need, and even home DMs are going to need some practice at it. It's going to take a while. But the reason to do it is because that's what's been happening in the real world mm -hmm. for a really long time. And right. people who don't have the privilege of not seeing it have had to deal with that over and over again. And so just, you know, I think we've gotten to the point where we recognize this and realize the harm it causes some people, mm -hmm. those who see it, because kind of once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yep. And it becomes a real problem and it, be, and it takes away from the fun of the game. And so it's important to start cleaning up those issues. And some of the issues are really jarring and some of them are subtle. Mm -hmm. You know, if you read some of the text that was removed, I mean, it's, it's kind of surprising that some of that was written in the 5e era. Mm -hmm. But it's not if you look at what's written in third edition or second edition. Right. And even though there have been exceptions throughout the entire history of the game, there's also a long yeah. established history of this sort of problematic language where you just paint with an immensely broad brush and then somehow say, oh, but you can play Yuan T. Right, exactly. You're the good one. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It's so, yeah, it's, it's good. The more they communicate, they being wizards and, and Ray Winninger in this case, the more they communicate these, this is why we did it. Then it becomes easier to understand it, to see it and yeah. to work with it uh, as opposed to like Paizo did with the slavery issue, you know, try to finesse it into some tricky narrative right. reason you know just come out and say slavery is bad we are removing slavery right. uh, and and if you do that then it, it instantly gets to the point and you can just do what you need to do yeah and one of our friends was saying this week you know don't whitewash it like it it's never been a problem because that's mm -hmm. also problematic right. right that makes it seem as if Everything's always been fine. There's nothing to see here, but but there is something to see here. In fact, one of the important parts is learning the why of it so that you can properly address it at, at your table. Right. Right. Or in your design. And so I'm glad Ray came back and 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 updated that post. And and it almost comes to what we said, you know, last week. It's sort of like this is a, written as if everything's always been fine. Yeah. And and it it is, you know, I think maybe wizards have, have learned that. Like you need to say why you did the thing you did. Yep. Yep. And speaking of doing the things that people do, uh, that was a the horrible segue, but we'll take it. Uh today is December 20th that we are recording. And apparently D20, December 20th, has been called D20 Day. Okay. And D D has announced that along with the celebrity game that is running by uh, Deborah Ann Wall. They are going to give away a free Dungeons and Dragons adventure, which is an excerpt from Dragons of Ice Fire Peak. So what have you learned about this? Because we literally just heard this uh, as we were starting to record. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a very cool game. It's got uh, Gaten Matarazzo from Stranger Things, Janina Gavankar from Blind Spotting, Melissa Villasenor from Saturday Night Live, Michelle Rodriguez from The Fast and the Furious, who's also in the D&D movie. Reggie Watts from Taskmaster, you know, all these amazing people. Uh, did you mention Jack Black? 
Oh, Jack Black is he? Yeah, I mean, I've heard I've heard of him. And that's streaming on, and I think they did this only to make me feel old, but it's streaming on TikTok. Of course it is. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be? Uh, sure. So IGN's TikTok channel today has this basically as we're, as we're recording. I'm sure there'll be a way to watch it later. It's donating money towards Extra Life. And as part of this, they are releasing something that we talked about in a previous episode that Wizards is sort of as part of the Magic the Gathering Adventures mm-hmm. in the Forgotten Realms D&D card set had kind of bizarrely commissioned online all these adventures, but then in stores gave away a version of Dragons of Ice Spire Peak, which I managed to get from my local gaming store because they had a lot of them because they didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but so you can now get that free online via uh, the link in our show notes. Mm-hmm. And it's part of that old free material page. They've resurrected that. And so they've got, it's a, a sort of preview and a, a section of Dragons of Ice Spire Peak. And then what's really cool is they have these really neat pre-gens that if you played fourth edition, it's a lot like those fourth edition cards that were two-sided. Yeah. And so those now are those nice. are available on PDF for the first time. And you can, you know, use those for your games. They're actually a really neat thing for people who, you know, run one shots and things like that. Mm-hmm. A fun way to do that. So take a look at that and have some fun with it. Yeah, those character sheets were super handy. They were usually glossy and you could use like a dry erase marker on them. Yes. So those were great. So hopefully by the time you hear this, the video, the stream will be available for anyone to watch and that free material will still be there unless you already have the Dragons of Ice Spire Peak, in which case you've already got the goods. Yeah. Um, those regions. That's right. And the goods are also coming on August of 2022. The goods in this case being the new Dragonlance book. Delray Books has announced the new book, Dragons of Deceit, will be the first in a new trilogy. What's in the book? Teos is going to let us know. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they want to do a sort of reboot-ish approach is what we've always been feeling and hearing. And this is going to be accomplished via time travel and your fan favorite, Kender, Tassel Hufferfoot, along with the device that we saw previously in the novels, the device of time journeying. And that's going to allow the protagonist, who is this new heroine, Destina Rosethorn, to go back in time and prevent things she didn't want to have happen to her during the War of the Lance. But at what cost, Sean? At every cost. Yeah. Did, did Did you love these novels growing up? Like, was this a thing for you? I started reading them right before I got into studying fiction professionally. So the first few books I read, and it was some of the first D&D that I've, I saw in fictional form. I was like, okay, this is cool. This is like D&D. And then as I studied more fiction and then went back and read some of the later novels or reread, I was like, yeah, this isn't my cup of tea at, at this point in my life. Uh, but I cannot say that they weren't creative. I cannot say mm-hmm. that, you know, that they didn't capture the imagination of a generation of fantasy fans and and role-playing game fans so you know i i i don't say this to hate on them it's just at my at the point in time in my life where i was these didn't quite fit what i was reading yeah i think that happened to a number of us i for sure i read them when i first went to college which has been on my mind a lot since my daughter just got into college and reminiscing a lot and realizing how old i am but um i uh 
reading this series, I mean, I remember just being in my bunk bed, you know, and just mm-hmm. reading through these things and just devouring them because it was just so cool back then to sort of have very D&D-ish yep. content to eat up. And then I would read something else, often sci-fi, that would just be really better writing but, yeah. and, and concepts and just so yeah. imaginative. But this was always comforting. And, it, you know, it was the mac and cheese of reading. From, and, and I still remember it. Fun. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great way to put it, right? It was it was something very familiar in a in a format that I wasn't used to reading it. So it was it was cool yeah. and novel in that way. And and I mean it and and almost feels like television in some ways in that it had just these very fun characters and concepts and ideas that we do still think about and laugh about and or 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 admire right like the idea of these red wizard versus black wizard and, and right. what does it mean to be in the different schools you know that's all very cool yeah and then it's funny because uh Hickman and Weiss put out other novels non dragonlance novels after that that I read and they were super well written and super mm-hmm. you know uh just really riveting for me at, in a way that these weren't so i, I it wasn't even uh you know, a knock on their writing style. It was just, this was the way that this story was best delivered, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, good on them. And I'm just going to say really quickly that, um, and again, I don't, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but, you know, the novels were a product of their time and there are yeah. issues in those novels. Sure. And one of the questions, especially because there was a little lawsuit that we covered some time ago, yeah. um, the lawsuit had all this language about the new novels having problematic Mm-hmm. issues right so one of the things that i know will happen is there's going to be a lens applied to these books when they drop in august mm-hmm. to see whether they are up to the modern era of what we expect out of yeah. our stories or whether they suffer from those problems and that's gonna be an interesting thing to see yeah yep it's just part and parcel with the world that we uh mm-hmm. we have inherited and that continues to evolve so it'll be interesting to to check them out in that light as well demiplane has some more news we've Heard previously that they are announcing digital tools for Pathfinder and for the World of Darkness games. Well, you can now add Free League to the Nexus. So their third Nexus will add uh, the following Free League games, which utilize the Year Zero engine. That's the Alien RPG, um, Vason, the Nordic horror role-playing game, Forbidden Lands, Mutant Year Zero, and Coriolis, the Third Horizon with other games to be incorporated in the future. So we now have the third big publisher to join up with Demiplane in their Nexus program. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. And you and I had uh, you know, drinks with Adam Bradford back at GameholeCon. Yeah. And he said to us, you know, oh, there's some big stuff coming. And we're like, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Business I'm people sure. always say that. Yeah. He wasn't kidding. <laughs> no, no. I, I, yeah, I when when Adam says something, I, I listen because... You know, we've all dealt with business folks who are all, you know, all marketing hype and very little follow through. And, and, you know, Adam has a track record of delivering on what he says he's going to. Adam reminds me of coworkers that I've had over the years that I just always want to work with again. Because when they say something, you know, it's real. And and, yeah. (laughs) So, so we uh, good on them. And we will continue to keep an eye on whether any more nexuses, nexi. Uh, are announced uh, going into 2022. Now for our minis portion of our show, we will, I will <laughs> hand this right over to Teos. Welcome to minis news. No, I'm not even going to pretend. 
But uh, online retailer Miniature Market has been purchased at some point earlier this year by Asmodee. And that's interesting news because it hadn't been shared with anybody except somebody very smart noticed it in a slide presentation that it was just sort of there as, as a company that they had acquired. Uh, this is Miniature Market is a well-known online retailer. If you buy a lot of miniatures and you can only afford but so many, you, you probably have to at some point migrate from your favorite local gaming store to a site like Miniature Market. They sell a ton of D&D and WizKids uh, minis. And apparently at some point they were purchased. Asmodee itself is being purchased by a Swedish company, the Embracer Group, for 2.75 billion euros. And so as part of this presentation they were doing about how everything is just going so swimmingly well, they um, showcased this as being one of the things that they purchased. They then separately announced that due to how hard things are, they are raising prices on popular board games. You know, marketing, (laughs) that's how it works. Exactly, exactly. Everything's going great. We are so profitable. Oh, yeah, we also have have to raise prices, prices, right? Because things are going so great. Okay, but hey, you know, yeah, mini news. We've got you covered there. In a two-part blog, Monty Cook has talked about narrative versus mechanic. So I, I love this type of uh, blog, this, these types yeah. of discussions. Uh, so in this blog, which is currently at two parts and will be expanding in 2022, Monty discusses the creation of role-playing games and when there should be mechanics involved versus just letting the narrative drive the action and the results. We could talk about just these articles for probably several episodes of the show. So we're not going to get into too great a detail about it, but it does provide a lot of great um, uh, information for creators. But it's also uh, useful just if you're a player, if you're a DM, if you're a fan, to think about games in these terms. You usually just see the end result of the mechanics and the narrative. So looking at it from a before perspective, about how the building of the mechanics leads to results, leads to the narrative, leads to the outcomes of play can be important. What Did you have any notes or thoughts on it specifically? I mean, he's been on fire on his blog recently with some really neat thoughts. The, this is just lovely because it, it, it gets, you know, he's looking at it primarily as a creator of RPGs. So when you design an RPG, when should there be a role, a check, you know, something like that versus when should you just have the character say what they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really good information in this article about that. But also, he looks at this, he shares this story from 3E when he was on the 3E D&D design team, where they would sort of jokingly say that they had a pool of complexity points to use up. And whenever they were thinking of adding some extra mechanic, they'd be like, well, is that worth the extra complexity points? And they weren't nothing they were counting or tracking, but it's just sort of asking that question out loud, a way to say, is this worth mental space you're eating up in a player's brain Mm -hmm. to do this? And that is a lesson that I think is really important for anybody at any level that's creating. You can be in your home campaign Mm -hmm. and you're creating an encounter. And if there's too much mental space getting taken up, too many of those complexity points, then the thing will suffer because mm-hmm. players will be struggling with it and to understand it. Whether, you know, and so sometimes you got to look at, well, yeah, it's, it's more the complexity is not worth, it's not worth this complexity because it'll eat it away. So let's strip it down and make it a right. little more narrative. Yeah. I mean, there are so many interesting 
points that he makes and then counterpoints that could lead into bigger discussions. Like the first one that came to my mind was, are you creating mechanics that illuminate play or mechanics that drive play? So in, in a sense of if you're just telling a story with your group, then you come to a point where you need to resolve something, then the mechanics are illuminating play. They're, you're resolving the issue and moving on. Whereas some role-playing games, D&D being one of them, the mechanics sort of drive the play because the mechanics are very much on your character sheet and they sometimes push you in certain directions and drive the, the story rather than illuminating the story. And yeah. you, need, you need to do that with certain games, especially if you want to sell lots and lots of supplements, because you want all of those stories that you can tell to be driven by the rules as opposed to illuminated by the rules. That's fascinating. I mean, I yeah. can think of, you know, like you can look at some of the changes between, and this is, a, I think, a question that D&D has to face when it looks at 5.5, right? Because they're yeah. talking about sort of advancing the design of the core races. And one of the things I like about the core races, they tend to be pretty light. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that are really more narrative. And a lot of the later design seems to have a slight increase in the amount of mechanics to it, and especially mm -hmm. mechanics that you might track versus that just come up every now and then randomly, right? Right. And so things like a, you know, an AD&D, a dwarf that just knows like how far underground you are. Mm -hmm. does It's not super useful. You know, right. but it's something that reminds the dwarf player that this is what you're grounded in. And so it's more narrative than anything else. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think today there's this sort of feeling of like, what if I give you a pool of chits to spend, you know, every encounter? Well, that's heavy. Right. And it, it, yeah. it bogs the game down. And so right. it's an important thing to look at of where are those complexity points? And yeah. You know. and, and it's totally fine to make a super complex game because there are players out there who want to play a super complex game. But you just need to be aware of that complexity, what the complexity is doing to the experience of of the players. You know, flanking, it always come back to flanking as yeah. a, it's a very simple rule that adds so much complexity to an encounter just in terms of the time spent in, in movement that, uh, is, <laughs> you know, is it worth it? For some people, yes. For some people, no. Yeah, part two, he looks at the purpose of mechanics. So he gives three purposes, fun, simulation and believability, and then consensus and order. So he says mechanics should exist for one or more of those reasons. Uh, if you can't give at least one reason for a mechanic to be there in terms of fun, simulation, and believability, then that mechanic shouldn't be there. And normally, or usually, you want at least two of those uh, purposes to be fulfilled by a mechanic. Otherwise, just let it sit in the narrative space. Yeah. And then I can think of some people that are like, if your mechanics aren't already in the narrative space, then you're designing a bad game. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, but that, that's a whole different kind of game. So, yeah, it's just really, uh, really interesting stuff. And, and that's when, the richness of it. I mean, something yeah. like initiative, right? Where we think of different ways that games handle initiative. Right. And what does that do to the game to establish that, right? Yeah, uh, it's just fascinating. And, and those are the kind of things that make design so fun. Yep. So we will keep an eye on future installments of that blog and maybe discuss it even more. Uh, it's funny because like I'm reading through the first one. I'm like, this is basically the first day of my college class. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mentioned this. Yeah, I mentioned yeah. that. I mentioned that. I mentioned that. 
So, you know, that's, that's how instructive and informative this blog is. You know, it's, it's like taking a class in, in game design. Uh, <laughs> yeah, theory. it's a really good series. Yeah. So tell me about this beast heart from MCDM. Yeah. So, you know, a little while back, Dean, um, MCDM released a 5e new class called the Illrigger that was all about uh, sort of serving different aspects of uh, sort of a hellish influence. And that had a very creative, imaginative way of being built. And now they've released the Beast Heart class. Uh, this is not part of their Arcadia magazine. So you buy it separately. It's $15 on the MCDM store. They also have a Fantasy Grounds or Roll20 version and even some cool miniatures. And the first thing that you kind of see is, oh, okay, there are these companions. It's not like a pet. It's more of a companion. And then you see, you know, my dog just voiced, I don't know if you yes. heard that, but he, yeah, he clearly uh, ready for this. Mm -hmm. But the companions are kind of like you'd expect from MCDM, wild and awesome. They are things like a basilisk, earth elemental, gelatinous cube, giant toad, mimic, owlbear, myconid, which they, I think they can't say myconid, but it's, you know, mushroom dude, yep. and, uh, and more. And, and so it's just great. Like, they're, they're really fun. The art is unbelievable. And you can use these companions even if you aren't a beast heart. Okay. And the companions have a way of building up ferocity. And that, that what's really important about these is they're not like in the 5e ranger subclass where it's like this is a tame thing that's all under your control. Mm -hmm. The companion builds up ferocity and, and you can spend it for them. But if you get too high, they'll go wild and just attack everything because they are ultimately a savage creature, right? Okay. And so <laughs> just the idea of like having a gelatinous cube companion suddenly engulfs your buddy. <laughs> it's wonderful. I want my I want me some of that. Yeah, and then That's the good. beast heart itself is really well designed and and integrates into all those rules. You get a really cool form fillable character sheet. I mean, it's just it's and they they're the number of play testers they've had on this and how long they went through the iterations. I'm on their Discord and so just seeing everything they go through. They work so hard. Lead designer James Intercaso, uh kudos to him for a really really good design. Excellent. And one more freebie giveaway coming your way. Uh, Ghostfire Gaming is providing the first chapter of Fables for free. We've talked about it before, but Fables is a new monthly subscription with each month providing you an 80-page adventure. And there will be six of those episodes across six months to give you a 480-page adventure by the end <laughs> of your ride. But Ghostfire Gaming is letting you download the first chapter of episode one totally free you can get it by going to ghostfiregaming.com slash fables if you do subscribe it's 9.99 a month before the new year and then it will go up a bit but you know for 9.99 for each episode you're getting a large adventure for you know basically 50 bucks yeah, it's awesome. and not only is there an adventure it's digital but they you get some digital tokens and maps and all the accoutrements that will help you uh help you run your game and my home group just finished rhyme of the frost maiden in which i was a player so it was my turn to dm again and i <laughs> took a vote i gave them tons of options and they decided to go with fables so uh, awesome. i i am looking forward to running that in the new year and i mean james hake heading up this project that's yep. you know it's going to be good yeah great art great uh writing james leading the charge all good stuff yeah, and if you go to the page as I did, and you you go to get the freebie, it will ask for your email, but then you very quickly can choose to not get 
the uh, basically not sign up for anything. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can literally just download and take a look, but there yep. is also the option to then be alerted to more news about fables if you want. So it's, it's a non-invasive, you know, it'll only be there if you want to be reached out to, which I thought was really nice of them to do. Yep. Um, them being the place where you work to. That's true. So we are now going to talk about our main topic, which is Fizban Treasury of Dragons. We are now up to part six. Could that possibly be right? I think it is. So last week we reviewed role-playing dragons, and now we're going to try to close out chapter three by talking about dragon followers and then how to create dragon encounters, adventures, and campaigns. Whew. So let's do this thing. So the, with the followers, they talk about the relationship that dragons might have with their followers or the, a dragon's role within your campaign. And they give uh, advice like a business owner, <laughs> Acquisitions Incorporated, <laughs> dragon right. style. Dragons could be a companion that take on a humanoid form and act as if they were uh, an equal to other humanoids. Could be a crime boss, an emperor, a god, a noble, a parental figure, a patron, a teacher, a warlord bent on conquest. And, you know, all these things are fine. You can definitely make a dragon any of those things. They could be a hundred other things as well. Or any of those things that I just listed. Any creature in the D&D game could be those. You could have a you know, gelatinous cube warlord if you so choose. Uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's not exclusive to dragons, but it's a good list for you as a creator of campaigns and adventures to think about NPC types that characters might be interacting with. Yeah. Yep. Solid advice. Yep. The next section is dragons minions. And here it's just really a very short piece that gives you five monster features. Uh, the kind of thing you might find in a monster stat block that you can add to a creature serving a dragon. So we get explosive minions that when it dies, it releases a burst of energy. And that's the same type of energy as the breath weapon. So if you like your sort of fantastic angle, that's a good way to work. I think it works really well if you pre-sage it ahead of time like if you've got kobolds that are sort of glowing red yeah and they burst into fire i mean that's really fun yes <laughs> but if you don't explain it it could be jarring so as usual try to set these things up minions mind you can't compel the minion to act in a way that the uh master would not want mm -hmm. uh selfless bodyguard you can it can use its reaction to cause an attack to hit itself rather than the dragon uh telepathic minion the dragon and the minion can communicate telepathically with each other Mm -hmm. so yep and i love these yeah i think that something like this is super important in what i will call right sizing an epic style encounter with a beast like a dragon right if your characters are very powerful and you put the solo monster out there and they you know beat it in one round because they all go before it and then they stun it and then they get a second round and it's done before it can even act minions can help alleviate that problem they can make an encounter more you know, interesting, more fun to play, more uh, memorable. So you could use these types of minion rules with any monster, any boss monster. And I'll, I'm going to throw in one for free. Ready? All right. Invigorating minion. When a master would start its turn stunned or incapacitated, a minion within 30 feet of the master can choose to die, sacrificing itself to remove that condition from the master. Allowing the master to act normally on that turn. Yeah, that's fun. That's great. So, 
Yeah, you know? I like that yeah. because you want to have ways as that are sort of a control valve in a boss encounter where you can make it harder or easier. And so giving your minions powers that they can use is neat. It also creates the other thing I really like in a boss fight is to draw attention away from the boss. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. everybody wants to just lock down the boss and use all those terrible powers they have and stun it and all that. And so if your other creatures are important or doing important things mm -hmm. like empowering it then or preventing it from, you know, being locked down, then some players will focus on, all right, let me fireball all those minions. Yeah. One thing I wish they would have said is just minions using the help action. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, that's something that that they give give your boss monster advantage on all the attack rolls by just having a minion help out another one is just you know the, the come on boss shake off that effect make another yeah. saving throw right that's right. a good one to exactly add. yep uh yeah and, and a minion who can you know wake it up from uh a sleep or a charm or, yeah. or something the only thing i wish they would have added here would be how many minions would you suggest for each age level of dragon or each CR, right? Because if you give a, you know, if you have your fourth level characters fighting a, a wormling and you give them 30 minions, <laughs> that's, that's probably too much. Whereas for an ancient dragon, 30 minions might be just about right with, with all these powers. Uh, so, uh, you know, that would have been good to just a rough estimate. This whole book has ignored encounter balance. Yeah. Right. So it said things like, what if when the dragon dies, it gets to breathe again? Right. Well, it's an enormous extra damage source you just added, right. but no mention of that in the text. Yeah. Yep. So that's uh that's sort of a it's a thing that that could have helped out, I think. And I the next section is dragon encounters. And that's what I thought this was going to be mm -hmm. was, you know, here are some tips about running or designing a dragon encounter and it's really more about storytelling as opposed to the actual mechanics of running the game uh the first question of the four questions that they tell us to consider when crafting an adventure featuring a dragon is is the encounter a goal or an obstacle and what they say is dragons are usually a climactic encounter but they can be used otherwise and and my my I maybe I'm not the audience for this particular section, but I'm like, yeah, no kidding. You can use any monster in any type of encounter, climactic or otherwise. And it was confusing to me because the first thing I thought I spread is the encounter a goal or an obstacle? Well, I think every encounter is a goal or an obstacle. You I, like I a role playing. Trying, <laughs> I think what they're trying to say is, is it a goal, meaning the climax of the adventure? Or is it a bump along the way, right? So like, are you okay. on the road and you meet a green dragon that swoops in for a meal and that's gotcha. all this encounter is? Or is this like, you know, ending the green dragon threat, you finally enter its lair or whatever. And, but I mean, you know, there's two sentences here. So it, it's not a whole lot to consider, but I think that's what they're asking is, is gotcha. when you design an encounter, ask yourself whether this is, a sort of more random encounter thing along, you know, like, is there just a dragon in a, you know, we've seen some dungeons, especially in old school adventures where there's just a dragon in a room, Yeah. but this is not the villain. Gotcha. You know, we keep going past this room. And so, so depending on that, you design differently, I think is what they're saying. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes better sense. So, cause the question that I would ask is how does a dragon best fit into the goal mm -hmm. or obstacle that you are setting up within the encounter? 
which is sort of what the next question they ask is what's the goal of the encounter you know and as as they say it doesn't have to include combat it could be a fight or it could be an escape it could be you know uh an interaction of some kind you know if the goal is just to survive great the goal is to get information out of the dragon that'd be cool too you could try to trick it into saying you know what you want you could try to intimidate it you know whatever yeah so these are good questions i just i was losing the focus on what it has to do with dragons at all i think a, a lot of this chapter and even the previous one when i read the heading i thought one thing yeah and then reading the text, I'm like, oh, okay, that's what this is about. Okay. Yeah. So what's the third question? Is the encounter in a dragon's lair, which is sort of a lot like the other questions. Um, so we're told, and th- this is sort of strange, we're told a lair fight is usually to the death because the dragon would hunt down adventurers who flee. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of contradicts the whole everything doesn't have to be a fight to the death thing that right. we've said before in this book. But Yeah. And then don't they also say a dragon is less likely to flee its lair? So yeah. it, you know, and in, in the other side of things, the dragon is less likely to flee. So it probably is a fight to the death, which, yeah, it seems to contradict what they say earlier. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether this text wasn't sort of, I mean, we've all worked on projects where something had to happen to text, either added or removed or modified. I wonder if something like this happened here because it, yeah. it just, I don't know, it's it's a little all over the it's, it's a little loose and i would have liked this to be i don't know but it, it, i think almost the questions may have been better on their own without supportive text and then give me more of what i was looking for about how to construct an interesting encounter because yeah when i think of a dragon's lair the things i want to know is how to make a dragon's lair resonate exactly i want it to reflect the dragon i want it to be its own challenge yeah. i want it to tell me something about the dragon you know, there's so many things that I do when I create a dragon's lair. And, you know, there, there are a number of examples right. that I've done in the past that, you know, those are the kind of lessons I would have liked to have seen here. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, they say, well, you know, fighting outdoors, dragons can fly out of reach. And that's a whole topic that I think is really important. Like a, a fight with a dragon that can fly and you can't get to requires a bunch of advice to run well and be yeah. fun and interesting. Right. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. What you said earlier was, I read these headings, and I'm like, okay, cool, I'm going to get some cool advice on all of these different topics. And it was basically, here are some topics to be aware of, but then they don't give the advice. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one thing I would love advice on is what to do when there's that standoff between a party and a dragon, where the dragon is too powerful and doesn't want to fight them, but the characters don't know that, or the characters are sort of being stubborn about it and they're they're not willing to leave or give in to what the the dragon wants you know what's some advice on dealing with situations like that yeah Uh, that i would love to hear because it's a very hard thing that a lot of dms run into when they run these dragon encounters and it just sort of fell a bit short i feel like uh in terms of the real advice to help run encounters with dragons yeah like i mean for that one this has been on my mind i forget exactly why but this came up in some other context and as part of the discussion i think it was maybe on twitter it was someone said it shouldn't have a stat block and and i think that's right it's almost like if there shouldn't be combat you should pretend there's no stat block like even if there is one right pretend it isn't and run it as if that stat block doesn't exist 
because then you will do things that are narrative, right? You will sweep it one of the player characters away with your claw and, yeah. and they'll hit it and it just bounces off the scales and the dragon laughs. And, and that lets players know versus if you start using attacks and whatever, yeah. you'll never properly communicate this dragon's too tough for you. They'll just think, oh, I didn't roll well, or I need to do a better spell, or if we lock yeah. it down, we'll get it. And, and yeah. that's the worst, right? And that's where those those encounters just go sideways. Yeah. <laughs> Only when the last character is left standing do they realize, you know, we should have fleed. Yeah, yeah. Now that we're all lying here bleeding and there's one character left at two hit points. In two hours. Yeah. So, and they also give a 20-item uh, table dragon encounter complications. What did you what did you think about that? They're good. I, I would have liked this sort of thing. I, I think almost belongs earlier. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe it's because, again, I, I sort of wanted like help me build that cool encounter. Yeah. And these are motivations that I'd use as part of the story. So things like the dragon is desperately trying to find a particular treasure, one or more eggs, perhaps a minion and kind of bargains for this to protect the thing that it likes. Uh, or wants and and that's all well and good but to me that would be a big part of my design yes up at the very beginning and then i would forecast that right i, I would i would i would show the characters hints of this right. by having items in my layer that point to this reality that would make them go wait why, why is there, there this motif going on you know why is there a giant nest laid out with nothing in it and books on parenting lit written in draconic <laughs> right right that's when you realize, right? So like, like I, in Acquisitions Inc., right? There's that uh, deep crow encounter. Right. And I literally put books next to the nest that are dating books. Right. So if you don't go in guns blazing, you know, you will go, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Is this thing trying to hook up? Maybe it's trying to hook up. <laughs> yep. yep. Maybe we have options here. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll, I was this, the same thing with a lot of them. It was like, this is not a, a dragon encounter complication. This is a huge plot point in the whole campaign not not us this little complication some of them yeah. i mean some of them are are smaller sort of encounter based yeah. mechanical complications about you know the layer being laid out in a way that you can only navigate it if you can use all of the movement methods of the dragon and i'm like okay that's cool uh but i would need to know that beforehand right to be to able to draw the map. the map yeah so it's it's uh it's something you definitely need to use ahead of time yeah and i think that's the thing is it just feels like in this encounter in this section i was going to learn how to craft an encounter and it's, so it's telling that the very last piece in the section is literally about the beginning right and so we yeah. haven't somehow gotten there and so then you know if i haven't seen the rest of the book i go cool i i, I guess that's going to be later on that you really tell me how to do this yep hopefully it will be uh <laughs> next we get into a section on dragon adventures we're told that dragons fall into three main roles, a dragon as a monster, a dragon as a schemer, or a dragon as a power. Dragon as monsters, I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, they want something, whether it's food or treasure or a secure lair. And because they want that, it is in conflict with what society wants, what the characters want. So we need to stop those attacks. We need to reclaim whatever layer that the dragon has taken. We need to acquire or reacquire the dragon's treasure if the dragon stole it. Yeah, it's totally fine. It's just not anything necessarily groundbreaking that doesn't 
cover every other monster in the game. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, same thing with Schemer, where it can be, you know, it's it's got goals and it's using agents to advance its schemes. And then Dragon is power that kind of confused me with it can impact the world as a whole. Okay, doesn't also a schemer or a monster? I, I think all of this just felt like I, I could have used, I think these are all good points to make, mm-hmm. but they're not super concrete in telling me what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Or why a dragon is different than any other kind of creature. Right, because Xanathar is a great example of a schemer too, and so what's... Right. Right. Oh, I mean, when you could say vampires, they want food, a secure layer, and treasure. You know, sure. and so you're trying to stop the attacks, reclaim the layer, or reacquire the treasure. They are schemers. They have agents that advance. You know, right? You could do and Barovia, they're a power. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah, I, I so I wish this had been like almost like shorter the way you might expect in one of those uh young adult books that they do that you know mm-hmm. tell you like what is a dragon, like sort of simpler at that level and then give me tools to do yeah to enable this right real how-to versus um right more theor- theoretical conceptual theoretical, yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then the final section are dragon campaigns where they give us examples from wizards of the coast and D lore uh, and and magic lore for for that matter we get crin so you know, in Dragonlance, the campaign is all about Bahamut versus Tiamat. They're called different things, but that's what it is. And uh, you know, Tiamat has the armies of draconians that are created from metallic dragon eggs, and the heroes and villains ride dragons into battle. So you know, in that campaign, dragons are front and center, both in terms of who the heroes interact with, as well as the larger world-spanning events that take place. What about the Council of Worms, which they discuss? It's a land governed by ancient worms representing 88 clans of dragons of all types. And the subjects include humanoid peoples, some of whom serve as aides. It doesn't mention that you in Council of Worms play dragons. That's an important part of the (laughs) campaign. Yeah. And and then Takir, Magic the Gathering setting, five dragon lords rule over Takir. They won the war and claimed dominion over humanoid clans, which now bear the dragon's names. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, I don't know if we want to go. Do you want to go over the rest of this section here? I mean, I feel yeah. like this whole section. Yeah. All right. Let's let's go into direct, direct dragon yeah. factions and then I'll. Okay. Well, they, they talk first about campaign events. You know, these events can define a campaign. Then they give examples like the rise and fall of a powerful dragon, a cataclysmic event uh, because of a dragon's rampage, rebellion or revolution against or using dragons. Um, the extinction or depletion of dragons, and then predictions, omens, or prophecies that deal with dragons like Eberron's Draconic Prophecy. So you can talk about dragon factions. Yeah, so this is a useful framework to to frame your campaign where you look at what the dragons, how the dragons organize themselves and how that could be an engine for your campaign. So the metallic orders, the idea that the chromatic dragons could be chaos, the factions are each a type of metallic dragon with distinct motives, like your silver order is chivalric, your brass order is good-hearted scoundrels, and so on. So they're all you know, divided into these camps, and that can be the impetus for your campaign. Or the scaled circles, each family metallic chromatic gem is a faction with opposing goals. They're not necessarily in direct conflict, 
might be some overlap. So your chromatic circle may seek wealth and power. Gem seeks knowledge. Metallic seeks to advance civilizations. And so various things that they're doing are running over one or more of the other's desires and creating interesting interactions. Dragon overlords, one for each type, and they demand allegiance from humanoids, a feudal society where dragons fill the aristocracy, and your characters sort of fit in between. This made me think like Shadowrun, where it's like, you know, the mega corpse, but they're dragons. Yeah, <laughs> so right. you're you're, up, you're moving in between these dragon overlords, uh, and certainly could be fun. Yeah. And then there's a section on dragon gods and how the using dragon gods can impact the campaign. So they say, for example, Instead of the gods of the mythic odysseys of Theros, uh, sort of the Greek-inspired gods, just plug in dragon types for those gods. So the god of the underworld would be a black Draculich, you know, instead of a sort of Thanatos, Hades type. Uh, yeah, cool. Uh, dragons of myth, they're given, uh, we're given ex- ideas for elevating dragons, not quite to the level of gods or maybe close to the level of gods. So, for example, the artifact of law, if you think about the rod of seven parts, the rod of law was shattered. And then seven ancient metallic dragons were guarding the fragments. The city sprang up around these sort of encampments of dragons. And so their role as guardians were pretty much forgotten as civilization sprang up around them. Awesome concept. Yeah. Uh, You get the cult of the dead god where the gods uh, slew a divine being, cut its body into pieces, and then fed each piece to a different chromatic dragon, making each of those dragons immortal. And now the cult wants to slay those five to bring back the dead god. Interesting concept. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Want to take the next one? Yeah. Dungeons of Dragons. Mm -hmm. Fifteen dragons burrowed deep into the earth and slept. And then elaborate dungeons were formed around them, I guess sort of harnessing that magic. No one has ever reached the final depths of the dragon's sleep. Man, you can do a lot with that idea, right? Oh, yeah. That's a lot of fun. Pillars of creation. Five ancient metallic dragons make their layers in the pillars. If all five are killed, the world collapses into chaos. Stirrings of rebirth. When the greatest spiritual leaders die, they rise from the ashes as a dragon egg. None have hatched, but cracks begin to appear in the oldest eggs. Yeah. Great concepts, right? These are yeah. awesome ideas. Yeah, th- these are these are really cool ideas. And you know, th- they're cool in the sense that we know that they're these big overarching ideas. So we don't need to the to delve into the mechanics of how to make yes. the encounter work or even the the campaign work because this is more like a world building exercise. Yeah. Which is, you know, easier to do theoretically and hard to do when you get into the details but yeah you can come up with some really awesome ideas and and that's what these are you know really fun ideas that you can run with yeah i i thought 99 percent of this section was just superb and the only little tiny bit that i would say is if you've read mike shea's lazy dm series uh, i forget exactly which book it is but he he walks through how to create a campaign Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, if we wanted to have a campaign that goes to level blah, here's how we could structure it. Mm-hmm. And he just breaks down how the different levels could play out and how the story could advance. And I think that would have been really helpful here. Yeah. If you're going to have a dragon type campaign, how, what could that look like? Right. And right. levels one to four, here's what they're doing. Levels yep. five to eight, you know, eight to 12, 12, you know, and so yeah. on. 
And that would be, I think, super helpful for your average DM to just be able to take one of these stories, mm-hmm. you know, take an easy one, yeah. a simple one, and say, here's what that could look like structure-wise. It wouldn't yeah. eat up too much space, but it'd be super, super useful for someone who hasn't maybe created a campaign before. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I, I didn't think of it in terms of Mike's book, but I thought of it in terms of what this what I want this chapter to be next time for sixth edition when they write this yeah. is flip this around. Start at the campaign level and say, here are some campaign ideas. Yes. And then, all right, now how do we, or world ideas. Okay, cool. How do we do a campaign? Just like you said, let's take this first one. Um, you know, We'll do the pillars of creation. In a pillars of creation world, this is what the campaign looks like. You level one to four of this. And then yeah. get down into the encounters. All right, this is going to be your highlight encounter for tier one. So at fourth level, when you finish tier one, here's how, you know, Give me a wow. full encounter yeah. blown up and, and shown. And now you're showing me, right? You're showing me, not telling me. And, yeah. and that's that's what we Ooh. needed in this chapter. Yep. I love it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Start and, and that's better when you start big and go small because you you're inspired by that. And that right. and that's also how you create generally, right? Is that the DMs at home thinking of some wild idea. And she goes, All right, now I've got to break it down to the thing I actually gonna run tomorrow. Yep. How do I get there? Yeah. How do I get there there. from from that idea? So, yeah. Well, uh, hey, somebody out there on the DMs Guild, start a a product and and do just that. Just give give us what the world looks like, how it's different, and uh, give us not even a a full adventure, just the outline and then some highlight encounters in there. And and I'd buy that. Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. Well, next week, we're going to get into Chapter 4, which is Layers and Hordes. But that is for next time. That is for our New Year's Day podcast. Woo. But until then, if you uh, are a Christmas person, Merry Christmas to you. And Merry Christmas to you, Teos. Happy holidays. Yeah, yeah, everybody. Thanks. You know, this has been my first year. I haven't yet clocked a year, but uh, it's been super fun doing this. I'm super thankful for uh, all of our listeners, for you, Sean. Mm-hmm. It's been awesome. Yeah, same here. Thank you for. Uh, for doing your duty for the D&D <laughs> world here. And uh, thank you also, as, as we said to our listeners and to our patrons, you in the new year can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find you on the interwebs? Ooh, my latest blog is on alphastream.org, talking about patrons. I mm-hmm. broke that down following on what you and I had chatted about. Part two will be up this week. On Twitter, you can find me at AlphaStream. How about you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can follow the podcast's Twitter handle, which is at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So now that we know everything there is to know about dragon campaigns, worlds, and encounters, what are we going to do now? Run a Beholder campaign. That makes perfect sense. No. <laughs> <laughs>